This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are trying to figure out how to invest like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and get rich. I mean, basically, that's the ballpark we're playing in. <laughs> and Danielle is that's all learning learning from me for the last what five years now, something like that. Something, yeah. Um, gosh. And I am just deep into Warren Buffett territory, and have been trying to follow Warren for I don't know thirty five years or so. And it's a it's an investing process that is just simple and like anything else simple isn't necessarily easy so we're unfolding it here and and today we have a special guest i do believe we are so fortunate to have a guest today we love having people on our show who can add to our view of investing and our investing practice and really see it from a different perspective so i'll start by saying that in 2009 a st louis glassblowing artist and recovering computer scientist named jim mckelvey lost a sale because he couldn't accept american express cards i remember those days Frustrated by the high costs and the difficulty of accepting those credit cards, McKelvey joined his friend Jack Dorsey, the co-founder of Twitter, to launch Square, a startup that would enable small merchants to accept credit card payments on their mobile phones. In his new book, The Innovation Stack, he recounts the startups against the odds survival of a direct attack from the most dangerous company on the planet, and one of our favorites, Amazon, and reveals the business strategy that made Square impenetrable, which is what he calls the innovation stack. Jim, thank you so much for being here and talking about innovation with us today. Thanks, Danielle. This is going to be fun. So I loved your book. Both dad and I loved your book. And the story that stuck out the most to me is maybe your favorite one, which is why I want to ask you about it right away. You said that you couldn't find a living mentor in innovation. <laughs> and what I want to hear about is the mentor you did find, who was the person who founded the Bank of Italy, and you ended up creating a graphic novel about this story, which is fantastic. And I downloaded it and everybody should go and do that. Can you tell me the story of your mentor that you found? Yes. So um, I have been an entrepreneur for my whole life. Uh, and by entrepreneur, I mean somebody who does something that doesn't have a template. Hmm. And so I've always wanted somebody to tell me what to do. Um, and after years of trying, I just finally gave up. But then uh, what happened was this, um, as you mentioned, the, uh, Square got attacked by Amazon. Mm -hmm. And the odds of surviving an Amazon attack if you're a startup are basically zero, at least when we couldn't find any other companies that had survived, but Square managed to. And so that set me on a quest for years to ask the question and answer the question, why? Um, and the answer led me to a history because it turns out that history is full of examples of other uh, startups uh, doing things like Square did. And the patterns were uh, stark enough that I I decided to get um, very picky and look for another square 
but I was looking for another square that wasn't using technology because the, the thing about studying trends is that the power of technology, specifically viral growth and you know network effects, are so powerful that you can be completely incompetent. In other words, the those effects are uh, they they screw up the they screw up the measurements. So what I did was I was looking for another financial service firm uh, based in the United States, founded by somebody who had no experience in the field. Uh, for the mission of expanding access because Square was all about expanding access to small artists and people who might want to take credit cards like I was. Um, and uh, I found this uh, produce vendor a uh, hundred years, you know, older than me who uh, got frustrated with the banking system in the uh, early 1900s and decided to start a new bank. And that bank, which was originally called the Bank of Italy, became the largest bank in the world. And you know, think about how amazing that is. Okay, so you've got this kid who drops out of school at age fifteen, uh, out of spite, becomes a banker, um, and doesn't know what he's doing, but ends up building what you now think of as banking. I mean, like if you think of banking today, you probably imagine a branch you can go to. You probably imagine being able to talk to somebody who speaks your language. You probably imagine being able to oh, say, take out a loan <laughs> or, you know, have a checking account or a savings account, um, like all of those things. Like and as a woman, loan. particularly, I would oh, have yes. been able to do that. I, that was one of the things that stood out to me about the story. Women were not allowed to bank. They needed their husband's uh, permission. And think about that. You know, so like the first bank that allowed women was Bank of Italy. Um, the, the first bank that did basically everything you think of as banking was the Bank of Italy, which then became the Bank of America, which then became eventually the biggest bank in the world. And uh, the man who founded it, a man named A.P. Giannini, had done a remarkably similar number, a remarkably large number of things that we had done at Square. It, the parallels were just amazing. So I decided to take him as my mentor, uh, even though he died 20 years before I was born. One of the amazing things about you choosing him as a mentor in the Bank of America, Bank of Italy story as kind of the precursor to Square is how it's you describe it as not being entrepreneurship and not being disruptive. Why do you not particularly like those words so much, which are such buzzwords so, in the innovation community? Yeah, so we hear the word disruption all the time, and I'm getting kind of tired of it because if you actually look at the data of what companies like Square do, we do not disrupt industries. We create new industries, and it's fundamentally different. Now, I can understand you could come in there with a new invention that sort of upends an industry, um, but the basic concept that a company is going to destroy I think is wrong. And I think it's the wrong focus. Like I would much rather have a company that is focused on building, which is what Square did. We basically expanded the market. And if you look at the data, we didn't run any of the other credit card companies out of business. We just built this own massive new area for ourselves. Um, and, you know, we're taking a little bit of business from them. I'm not saying it's, it's, it's total zero, not totally zero sum, but, um, generally we did not disrupt. And the other companies that I studied did not disrupt either. Yeah, so, Giannini expanded the market as well by offering accounts and loans to all those people you just mentioned. Yeah, and and you know this is sort of one of the things I look at when I'm um, 
uh, looking for opportunity to, to make investments is I'm, I'm, I'm asked myself a fundamental question, which is, is the company in question creating something new, in which case they can own it using the techniques that I describe in the book? Or are they trying to elbow their way into the crowded elevator with everybody else? Like, mm. you know, anyone who, well, I guess these days all the elevators are empty. <laughs> but imagine back two weeks ago, right? Um, uh, when we could, you know, when you could, when you could go into a crowded elevator. And at, at that time, you know, a crowded elevator, at least in New York, where I spend some time, um, you're like, nobody wants you to get in. You know, the thing's cramped, but they'll, they'll adjust. They'll make some room. Um, and that's sort of like business. Uh, most businesses enter crowded markets with established competitors. And, you know, they elbow their way into some room. And, you know, if they're really aggressive with their elbows, they get a lot of room. Um, but it's still a crowded elevator. What I was looking to study and what I try to put my money into are companies that are so ahead and so dominant that they are basically the only ones in the elevator. So why, why is that so rare? I mean, you have this idea that the skill set to do that isn't rare, but the actual accomplishment of it is rare. What, it, it's a great how question, How do those two Phil. things work together? So the reason it is so rare is because copying is such a great idea. Okay. So I mean, like, what are you guys trying to do? Like, you, you start off the program. You're trying to copy Buffett and Munger, which oh, is really exactly. smart. We strongly urge copying. Which yeah, is, but, yeah, I mean, that's the right One of our favorite right investors is, is, is a guy who says that, you know, cloning is the great secret to good investing. You oh my God. Someone who knows what they're doing about buying $10 bills for five bucks and you clone them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, what you've, what you've hit on is what we all hit on, what we, what we are born to do, which is to copy things. And we are born because we're successful copies. Like if you're not a reasonably successful copy of your parent, uh, you're dead. And Danielle seems to be, you know, she's, 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 she okay. looks good. You know, she's, like Thank that you. copy worked, right? And yeah, and um, good copy. the 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 way the universe functions generally is take something that works and copy it. Okay, so when does that not work? And the only time that really doesn't work is when we're confronted with a totally new set of problems. When it's when the problem has not been solved before, there's nothing to copy. So. Um, so Phil, your question is excellent. Why aren't more companies doing this? Well, the answer is in most cases and in most businesses, copying is the strategy that works the best. The only time uh, I was able to find companies not copying was when there was this either problem that had never been solved before and they were attracting that problem or when in the case of companies like Ikea or Southwest Airlines, for some strange reason, the company was excluded from the market. So they couldn't get into the elevator. You know, there was some, there was some bar that, uh, that prevented them from, from entering the market. So they had to do everything differently. So, you know, I, I was able to spend time with Herb Kelleher, who was the founder of Southwest. And I actually took all my book research to Herb before I published, actually, before I wrote the thing, I had all my research done. I went to Herb because most of the studies that I'd done were historical studies. And the great thing about history is that everyone's dead. So nobody can argue with you, you know? So, <laughs> you know, you get this, you get the situation where you can make up whatever story you want and the people who would, you know, normally contradict you aren't around. So, so I had all this historical data and I didn't want to make that mistake. So I took it to Herb Kelleher and I said, you know, Herb, what do you think? And he 
first of all, agreed with me and then pointed out a bunch of stuff that I'd forgotten or missed. Um, but the, the act of doing that was, was really interesting because Herb told me about how Southwest was just trying to be a normal airline. They just wanted to set up, you know, some basic air, air service. They didn't want to dominate the skies. They didn't want to be like one of the top performing stocks of, you know, the decade from, you know, the early eighties to the mid nineties. Like they, that wasn't their goal, but they were prevented from copying. So if you look as an investor and you look at Southwest and compare them to a different airline, compare them to a normal airline, Southwest is doing 20 things differently, you know? And I go through this in the book um, in, in great detail. I won't bore you with it here, but like everything the way, from the way they boarded the planes to the type of planes they flew to the routes they flew was different. And they dominated the skies, you know, in an industry that, I mean, Buffett jokes about the airline industry being, you know, the worst destroyer of capital. Of course, of course, he now owns a bunch of American, I think. But oh, he, um, owns, he owns a bit of Southwest, Delta, American, United. I think he just took a slice of everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, he's, uh, he's at a different level now. And, uh, and, and the airline industry has changed a lot. Um, but it's an interesting world uh, to imagine Southwest dominating but this as is, this, this little is, startup. I mean, to me, this is such an important thing for an investor to be thinking about um, what what allows a company to dominate um, like Southwest has, because here we are in this huge crisis for the airlines and um, and Southwest. I mean, I don't, I don't know what your take on it is, but they look to be in the most stable position by far Absolutely. Uh, compared to the other airlines out there um, as they're being disrupted by something right out of the blue. Um, is there. And I think I got from the innovation stack that it wasn't so easy to just figure out, oh, what are the, what's the perfect list here that, that I can give everyone to yeah. go out and innovate? I would you know, love to know how to identify an innovative company. Where's the list? Right? <laughs> yeah. So that was, so that was to, a problem, right? Well, so, so there are two questions there. One is how do you build it? Um, which I don't have a checklist for, but I have a process that I can describe. Um, and the other question, uh, which Danielle asked, is, is sort of a better question for investors, which is how do I recognize somebody who has built one? Mm -hmm. So we'll take the first question, which is how do you build it? And the answer is essentially you have to be in a situation where you're prevented from copying. Okay. So this is not a, this is not a case of self-discipline where you should go out and say, oh, I'm going to build an innovation stack and therefore I'm not going to copy all the stuff that everyone else knows works. No, dude, if it's working, that's the thing you do. What you need to do, which is really uncomfortable, is put your company into a market where there are no products, where there is nothing. And in the case of Southwest, there was no cheap service um, in Texas. There were these, you know, Brandis and Texas International had these very expensive routes. And Southwest said, we're going to fly, you know, our neighbors and friends around, you know, for 19 bucks. And that was unheard of. So they had to do everything different. They, they were forced to innovate. So you, you like, I've, I, I've not found a situation where innovation is a first choice. <laughs> oh, right. So, so that's... So what, what is the first choice? Well, the first choice is to copy. Find something that works and copy it. But I mean, like, that's what is the good... first choice to make a decision you're going to go, go after this in the first place? Why, well, what am I trying to do when I'm trying to go after something like this that I decide, okay, I'm going to copy somebody. Why? Why am I doing that? Well, I mean, so so it, it it comes it comes down to the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, if you're trying to solve a problem, and you care about the problem, who cares if the solution is original thought or a copy? 
Right. Like if your focus is on the problem, not on the process, then the best solution is usually find somebody else who's done it and do what they did. So Herb, Herb is trying to figure out how the problem is uh, people can't fly if they don't have a lot of money. Right. Ba basically. And I'm going to solve that problem. This is kind of how you see him going at it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Herb, what, you know, when he, what he, when he and the team at Southwest did was they said, well, we want to give low fares. So how do we do that? Well, we're going to have to uh, fly to cheaper airports. So our landing fees are lower and we're going to have to uh, get more seats on the plane. So we're going to dispense with uh, this uh, first class uh, and, and coach service. We're going to have one type of uh, service on the plane and we're going to board our planes differently. We're going to board them in batches so that you don't have assigned seats uh, so you can get people on and off the planes faster and we're going to turn our planes faster and we're only going to fly 737s because that way if uh, one of our flights gets disrupted, uh, you know, the the crew can go to another plane. Whereas, you know, United, they've got 14 different types of airplanes and every pilot has to have a separate type rating, i.e., you know, two months of training every year uh, on each plane. Well, if you type rated on six planes, you basically don't ever work as a pilot because <laughs> you're constantly retraining. I mean, it's, it's that sort of stuff. And um, all the stuff that Southwest did was in service of this goal of making air travel affordable for other people. So they didn't serve meals. Uh, so they had a different reservation system. So, I mean, again and again and again, they did something differently. And yeah. what happened was these things interrelated with each other and created what I call an innovation stack, which allowed Southwest to basically dominate the skies um, pretty much absolutely. If you look at their stock performance during Herb's turn, during Herb's tenure, the stock was just one way. It was straight up. Um, once the new management took over and abandoned um, their low pricing strategy, uh, they sort of lost that domination. But uh, it was a tremendous strategy and a great investment thesis. So, so, so let's let's take Danielle's question, which I thought was a great question, which is, you know, how do you how do you invest for this? And I think as a public sector investor, it's difficult because by the time a company goes public the innovation stack is already pretty much baked. So Square's innovation stack was set within, I would say six or seven months, you know, maybe a year to really get everything fine-tuned. And after that, it's been, it's been sort of, you know, incremental refinement. Um, but then what we did was we went out on the market uh, five years later. Now, if you bought Square at that, you would have, uh, I don't know what the stock is at right now, but I mean, you know, it's a, I think it's 50 something, 53. Yeah. Okay. So it's a five X increase over the IPO and it has been as high as a 10 X increase over IP. You know, it's been done very, very well. Um, and um, the innovation stack still protects us because we have not abandoned a lot of the elements that, that preserve it. Um, so if you see a company that's doing something fundamentally different and you could not point to just one or two things, but 10 things that they do differently, um, that's a company you invest in. That's the feature of the stack, right? Is it's not just one thing. It's not just two things. It's not just iterating, doing something better than everybody else. It's really doing 15 to 20 things completely differently. Yes. And I think that's what's so unique about this book and why this thing is its own world for entrepreneurs. I've never read a book like this um, that would lay out entrepreneurship in these sort of stark terms. And, um, and for me as an investor, it lays out 
these different innovation stacks. That's what I love about it, Jim, is you went, you, you not only just took Square's stack, but you took the other, uh, the three other stacks as well and laid them out there because they're, they have similarities and they have differences. Yeah, look, I mean, nobody wants to read my memoir. I mean, I'm, I'm just a guy, <laughs> nobody cares about me. Um, what they care about is the company I founded or co-founded, I should say. Um, but even then, who cares, right? It could just be a lucky one shot, right? Um, what I was interested in was a pattern. And if there was a pattern, then it's worth discussing. And yeah. what I found was, in fact, there was a pattern, it's just really rare. Like yeah. it's really, yeah. it's really, really rare. rare. And so rare that you can go your whole life and never notice it. And which is what I'd done because, you know, the, like I was 50 years old when I started writing this book, you know, I'd seen this pattern my whole life. It took me three years of solid research. And I had a lot of resources at my disposal, but yeah, it took me three years to figure out what the hell was going on and that it wasn't just this accident. And the only reason that happened was because I accidentally stumbled upon this in the creation of Square and accidentally um, uh, had this epiphany when we survived the Amazon attack. Because when we survived the Amazon attack, look, when Amazon copies your product, undercuts your price by 30%, which is the number they always undercut your price with, you die. Yeah, That is a 100% accurate statement, except in one company's case, which is Square's. And having lived through it at Square, I had the additional insight that we didn't do anything differently. So the, the amazing thing about Square's response to Amazon was you would think, oh, we just you know got into our bunker and came up with a plan and executed our plan brilliantly. That wasn't what happened. We went into our bunker and we're like, what the heck can we do? Like what do companies do when they're attacked by Amazon? And the answer is they die. <laughs> like they that was thought. the answer. You just, just, yeah. just go ahead and pick out the tombstone. And it was like, well, maybe instead of just dying, we'll just keep doing what we're doing. And it worked. Like we didn't do anything differently. And, and, and it's amazing that that strategy worked. And I was like, what the hell's behind this? So I, I happened to find this pattern and then do all this research. And I was like, oh my God, this wasn't an accident. It's just this really rare thing. And this, that, this that, thing that protected you, this, this is the stack. And the innovation it stack. A yes. thing. It's a stack. It's, it's a bunch of different things that you do differently. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's 20 different in, in Square's cases, it was 14 different things. In Southwest, it was 20. It was Bank of America probably did 25 different things. You know, it's, it's a, it's a completely different set of behaviors that are consistent, you know? So again, I, I, I don't want people to get the wrong impression about buying my book. Like there are no checklists in this book. Like if you buy this book, you're not going to go, oh, here's McKelvey's formula on page 87. Oh, actually on page 87, I think I, I, think I do give away the secret of success in every other business, which <laughs> I will share with your listeners. Just copy what works. Like the yeah. secret <laughs> to success. If you want to be successful, just copy what works. Like, like you know, listen to Phil and Dad yell, help, help you be a better copy of Munger. Like that's, that's great. That's, that's, exactly. that's, that's the secret of success. Like, yeah. But there are no checklists to this stuff. It's, but it's a process that if you understand it, you can recognize it. And if you recognize it, again, I, I, I don't want to mislead your listeners. It's probably a different investment thesis than Munger and Buffett have because I've, I, I haven't met Munger, but I've met, I've met Warren a couple of times. And I you know, sort of deeply respect what they do. 
Um, but they are not typically in rapidly changing, technologically unstable businesses that have innovation stacks. They're, they're sort of they're sort of in after the stack has proven its worth, and there's a moat, and there's you know. I find this curious though. Are you saying that a a, a business that's mature no longer has an innovation stack, or it's so mature that other people have recognized it by this point? It, 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 so over time, innovation stacks get copied unless companies behave in a very particularly aggressive way. And the aggressive way is to keep the price so low that nobody can ever touch them. So um, taking IKEA as the classic example, IKEA came up with a phenomenal innovation stack, which allowed them to dominate furniture making, including the Chinese who are the best copies, you know, copyists in the world were unable to rip off Ikea. Like they just gave up when the Chinese quit, you know, you're tough, right? Um, and uh, Ikea has maintained that because they've held true to uh, the pricing uh, values that I, that I discussed, which is this, this idea that just because you can charge more uh, doesn't mean you should. Uh, and there's a specific way of pricing if you've got an innovation stack, which, you know, it's, yeah, it's more technical. I thought technical. that part was actually hugely informative for people studying investing. I found it to be really interesting to to just to know what way companies are thinking about pricing and the way I would like them to be thinking about pricing. Thanks. As I was writing that chapter, I was so worried that I was killing readers who would be listening to it as an audio book. And they're just like, oh, pricing <laughs> theory. And they fall asleep and five car pile up. Um, actually, you know, I didn't actually write a business book. Like the book was originally a graphic novel. Like the, the, like I, you saw the comic that was chapter nine, but like originally this whole thing was supposed to be a comic. And, and one of the reasons I didn't do that was Herb Kelleher, who gave me probably one of the last interviews of his life. I was so jazzed about Herb's interview that I thought I'm going to do this as a graphic novel because I thought I thought Herb would love it and I thought it'd be super fun and I'll, you, you got to have fun with this stuff. So I was like, yeah. oh, this is going to be great. So I started sketching everything out and I sent it to Herb and he was like, I don't want to be portrayed as a cartoon character. He's like, no. I don't. No, Herb didn't. Herb hated it. Oh, no. And, and he gave me this. I was he gave thinking me this that really would be so cool. What Herb Kelleher told me, he said, Jim, when I was a boy, comics were not serious he says and i know these days that you know the graphic novel is this thing he says but i'm 85 years old and i don't i don't feel right having you portray me and the stuff that we discussed which i consider very serious and important uh as a comic mm. and i was devastated i was like Holy. i was like oh my god you know this because herb's a legend you know and and he and you were probably thinking of him in the, in the, being portrayed as a superhero right oh yeah i wanted to give him a cape and everything I, I was i was really gonna sort of play it up and um he he did not like that and so i uh i was destroyed i mean i put the book project down for like six months and then i finally picked it up and i started writing um but i tried to keep that comic book like tone to it because look a lot of these stories are fun um but yeah herb herb killed half the comics um and then uh penguin uh my publisher <laughs> killed the other half by explaining <laughs> to me how many people listen to audiobooks these days and they're like uh look your your, your stupid comics are not going to make it uh, inaudible so 
Well, I will give a personal recommendation to everybody listening. Go to your jimmckelvey.com, right? Your website. Yeah. yeah. And download the graphic novel of the Giannini story because it's really fun and it's really well drawn and I highly enjoyed seeing it. Yeah, it's fun and it's free. So just go get yeah. yourself a free comic on The Badass Banker. And it's it's a real comic book. Like it's got... Uh, yeah, totally. He's oh, a yeah, superhero. He's a superhero. There's, you know, all the stuff you expect from a comedy. There's the, a comic, there's a, there's a murder... Uh, there's a destruction of a major city. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, horses and gold <laughs> bars and, uh, you know, hiding money evil in the gang. fireplace. Yes. Yes. I love that <laughs> part. A, yeah. And it's all true. Like, that's all historically accurate. Yeah. Like, okay. So I'm going to go up. back to investing now, Jim. Please, okay. So if I'm investing. looking at mature companies these days, um, I'm going to restrict my view to public companies only. Is there, are there any innovators that you follow? Anyone leading companies these days that you think, okay, that person really is doing it right. Um, and I trust them to innovate well and build their stack in the future. Or is there, I mean, the people that you mentioned in the book are uh, either past or. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't be buying BOA stock right now. Um based on what Giannini did. There may, there may yeah. be some other technical reasons for buying Well, Bank and frankly, same know. with Southwest, as you point out. Yeah, I book. wouldn't buy Southwest stock right now because they've abandoned a lot of the things that Herb um, did. Yeah, exactly. So is there anybody you do watch? And Ikea doesn't sell stock, uh, and neither do the guys who make Purell. I mean, I looked at that, <laughs> I was like, you know, I mean, you right, know. Right, right. Sadly. Yeah, the so, coronavirus so no, brought to you by nobody Perel. jumps to mind. What about what about uh, Square itself? So, um, I mean, I don't want to plug my own stock because you're I allowed have material, to plug your own stock. It's okay. I, I have material non-public information about uh, Square, um, but I would just say one thing, and that is, we have not abandoned the principles I discussed in the book. So. Like I, I will get in serious trouble if I hype my own stuff. And, and the, com the company is extraordinary. I, I have to say, you have an extraordinary board, really unbelievable board, and um, and you're moving into Bitcoin, uh, like, like setting. Well, up we're letting people move into Bitcoin. Yeah, you're what letting people what, move into Bitcoin. What, we're, what we are the first um, regulated entity um, by that a public company is regulated that that allows individuals to fairly trade Bitcoin. Um, and, uh, it's, look, I'm not suggesting it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you can do it or you can not do it. That's, that's up to you. But, um, but if you choose to, we're the very safe and fair place to do it. Um, and that's all part of the cash app and the cash app is a, a phenomenal innovation stack that we built, uh, as a second. So we have, you know, we have two innovation stacks at the company. One is, uh, the one driving the Square ecosystem. That's the one that Jack and I put together. The other one we had, um, you know, Jack and I, all we did was sort of not kill the other one, which was uh, what's become Cash App. And Cash App is this spectacular uh, tool for people uh, sending money to other people and then investing and trading and doing other cool stuff. I mean, it looks like it's growing at triple digits. Uh, I mean, the rest of the company is yes. growing at a, at a stunning rate by yeah. any normal normal metric, but Cash App is off the chart. It's triple digits. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. congratulations on that. And then, okay, you're not going to tell us what price to pay for this stock, I guess. I, I'm completely unqualified for that. But you know what? I, I Could I just questions. say more? 
<laughs> sure. You could there's say, my answer. Here's, here's, here's something I've wanted to ask somebody at your level for so long. Warren Buffett has the idea and follows through on this idea with his own company at Berkshire that the CEO, one of the CEO's critical jobs for, for uh, as a CEO is to provide the shareholders of the company sufficient information every year that they can make a reasonable approximation of value of the business that, that I should have, if I'm an owner of Berkshire, I should be getting enough information from Warren, according to Warren, that I could figure out roughly that what this business is worth. Yeah. That, that shouldn't be hidden away or tucked away. It shouldn't be, shouldn't be manipulated. I don't of course, see with the great hardly. contrast of Charlie Munger's company, Daily Journal, which Daily hides Journal, much of its information. Everything. So yeah. there's a direct <laughs> counterpoint, but go ahead. There you go. That is so true. The Daily Journal is brutal about hiding all their information. <laughs> so I don't see any anybody but Warren actually out there doing that. But man, I mean, what do you think about that idea? Just from, as a board member, um, what what do you guys feel as a board member your responsibilities are to to the owners of the company? Or do you even see shareholders as the owners of the company? Uh, well, no. Um, we see our customers as the owners of a company. We're not a shareholder first person or a group. I, I'd say we're employee first, uh, then customer, uh, then shareholder. And, um, you know, Square's in a unique position because Jack and I have controlling interests of the company. So we don't have to worry about some activist investor coming in and getting all upset with us uh, not putting shareholders first because, of course, Jack and I are the largest shareholders and um, at least as far as votes go. So, um, so well, we're, actually, we're lucky. I, I, want, I don't want to lose this thought, but I love the idea that you guys are, are setting up a kind of a stakeholder orientation. Um, we, love, we love John Mackey and we, we teach our students about stakeholder orientation as being critical and that we want people to effectively vote their values with their money and start putting their money where their mouths are rather than handing your money over to a moral bunch of, of uh, you know, investment funds who are going to put, put your money into stuff you hate and, and hate how they act. Um, what, do you, what do you think about that? Well, yeah. I mean, I guess it's, it's easy to agree with Phil and then it's hard to do. Uh, um, I think for me, one of the most interesting things with all the damning information about Enron that eventually came out was released with Enron's filings. Like you look at the Enron uh, filings there that, that they had to make and all that information, all the shady stuff that they were doing was disclosed. Like there was no sort of discovery, like, aha, we busted these guys, you know, through some, uh, you know, investigative journalism. No, it's like reading. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's possible to obfuscate terrible behavior um, and still technically comply with the disclosure laws. Sure. So I believe that there's a higher standard, which is that uh, companies, to the extent that they can, should interpret and share what they're doing. So right after the crisis uh, last week, uh, Square released a uh, an insight into what we saw and gave numbers to the street and, you know, shared shared everything we could because look we're all going through this crazy crisis right now and i'm you know sitting in a in, in, in my study i've got a you know half inch thick layer of purell on um i'm i'm literally scared as everybody else about what's going to happen with the world and um one of the great things that square has is a bunch of really good data so we share it 
Um, and I think that's a good way to behave. Um, and I think that's sort of the spirit of the law. But yeah. the problem is when law gets written, then it gets written as these very, you know, sort of legalistic uh, mandates that you can interpret and, you know, kind of misinterpret. And some companies do that. But I think disclosure is probably better. I, I, mean, I think you guys are, in general, I think your company and then I think you in particular are writing about entrepreneurs who put passion and their values ahead of the bottom line, right? And and I don't see how that, I don't see how that, that's a bad thing. I think I think there's pretty good evidence out there that if you put these things ahead of the bottom line, the bottom line could be bigger than you would have ever thought. Uh, bigger for longer, absolutely. I mean, so look at, uh, we'll go back to Southwest. So Herb essentially handed the reins to a new administration that had the lowest cost in the industry, like massively lower and such a value premium that customers were willing to pay way more. And so the current administration at Southwest basically stepped in and said, oh, well, we can look like heroes for the next decade by just slowly ramping up our prices, which is what they did. And at a time when the rest of the industry was increasing at 30% or at 17%, Southwest fares were increasing by 35%. Like they were double the rate of increase. And they eventually got to the point where they were on parity with the uh, carriers like American, you know, and I didn't have the balls to ask Herb about that because I was sitting in his office and I had mm. that question, but mm. I'm not, I mean, I was so grateful to this legend to just, you know, tell me if my research was full of holes that I didn't want to offend him. Mm. And I deeply regret that because I think he wanted to talk about that. Mm. Um, and I've got, I've got tapes of the whole interview. I, you know, we talked for three hours and he, I could tell when he was talking about Spirit Airlines, which was undercutting uh, Southwest on cost mm -hmm. and on price, uh, that he was uh, upset. And I should have, I should have had the guts to do that. And I didn't. And I really, I really regret that. But I'm not a reporter. I was just a guy trying to see if I should write a book. Um, but yeah, you can look like a hero by exploiting your cost advantage uh, up until you give away uh, the protective mode and you have a dozen competitors, which Southwest now does. Man, how do we get CEOs? I don't know if you've thought about this a great deal, but how do we get CEOs to be people who are are passionate and are putting values ahead of the bottom line or putting, you know, employees and I mean, putting the whole stack of of the stakeholders there to be thought about all together, not just sort of, oh, yeah, we're just going to crank up our next five years so I can walk away with a $20 million a year income and a big goodbye check. Um, and live happily ever after, which seems to me what a lot of CEOs do. They, they're almost like mercenaries out there. You know, they're parachuting in, they come in, they do great things, and then they're gone, and then the company just craters. And, and I hate that. For, for investors who are looking long-term, that's really destructive. Well, so imagine the process that gives you a CEO. So you have a vacancy or... <laughs> a future vacancy, like you have a pending vacancy, like we got to get rid of this joker. Mm. Um, and uh, then you start looking and what do you do? Well, you immediately fall back into copying. So what are you going to do? Well, you're going to find somebody who's, you know, CEO-like and behaves CEO-like. Well, there's a stereotype for that. Mm. And there's a handful of people who fit that stereotype at any one time. Um, and those people aren't stupid. They're going to maximize their comp and revenue. Um, and so they're going to get a 
beautiful golden uh, parachute uh, as part of their, you know, uh, as part of their deal for even looking at your company. So um, boards do that, that because so true. It's copying all over again. You're it's right. copying. It's yeah. copying. It's copying. Right. It's copying. It's copying. So you know, like if you want to, you know, take my sort of formula from the book on how to do it yeah. is you go down three levels in the organization and you find the person, you know, and you find somebody who's, you know, super passionate, you give her the keys to the suite, you know, <laughs> I love it. Um, I love it. But you, that you avoid the climbers, but that takes real guts because the market may punish you for that. Yeah. You get somebody who doesn't have um, a pedigree from the market. Uh, and, 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 and so what's the poor analyst to think who's, who's sitting there saying, well, so-and-so is now the head of this, uh, public company and we don't know anything about her and we don't have a, you know, she didn't, she didn't come up through the ranks. So, um, so we don't know how to evaluate this. So we're going to, we're going to give it a negative rating because so, I mean, now would I do that at one of my companies? Absolutely. Would I also be tempted to follow the herd? Yeah, like I would. I mean, I'm, I'm as much a sheep as anybody else. Man, what's driving me nuts is that while you're, while you're sitting there saying this, I recognize that, yeah, the analysts would come out and they would hammer the company. But part of me is just going, okay, well, so what? So all the, all the morons who don't understand the long-term value of this business get out. Yep. The price goes Great down time. by 50%. Great People time. who want to own this thing are going to jump in there and buy it. Great time. I mean, yeah. why not do it? Because in the long run, I think even the analysts in New York recognize that the market's going to price the company to its value eventually. So if this person is adding value and the other person wouldn't, the better long-term play is your three-level down person. They yeah. just can't evaluate it. They're going to have to wait. Yeah, they, they back off the stock. But, they're, but eventually, if you got the right person, that's far better for the company. That's that's absolutely correct. But you don't see uh, internal promotions that much. You know, Microsoft maybe notwithstanding, uh, Google kind of notwithstanding. But look at the I I kind of like at those, those successes. Yeah, yeah. But look yeah. at you know, you know like who's this guy? You know. Yeah, uh, and Microsoft <laughs> actually had quite a dip in its as to your point had a dip oh. in its stock um, after the new CEO came on for a while until he started to prove himself. And then it went off like crazy. Yeah. Hindsight's yeah. 2020. We all wish we'd bought that $18 Microsoft, right? Exactly. Well, some of us did. And the other part of it is having a board of directors that are willing to take that risk on and uh, having a strong board like that is also quite rare. And I wonder if you, see any companies out there again i'm going to ask again are there any companies out there that you look at that have a strong board or um or a bent towards um making those kinds of riskier decisions that the the wall street may see as not quite as good short term but you think are better long term danielle i wish i had a better answer for that question because you asked I, like i should have an answer for that it's okay if you don't. Um, I, I would well, love to I'll, know if you don't see anything out there. That's also well. Really no, it's not that I don't see anything. It's that I investing um, in this, uh, where I have to become an expert, really stresses me out. So where welcome to I the club, Jim. <laughs> yeah, where, where where I invest is in businesses that I know so well 
that it's obvious. Like I just mm. don't do like, okay, so why did I invest in Microsoft? Well, I look at the company, okay? And then all of a sudden I see that the VCs around Silicon Valley are constantly, their startups are running into competition from Microsoft. This was back when everyone thought Microsoft was run by, you know, uh, sweaty idiots. Yeah. And um, they, they were like, wait a second, no, there's a new sheriff in town. And so I piled into that stock because they were beating my my fellow startups. You know, when a when an established company, you know, starts starts doing that, you kind of go, oh, well, something's happening here. You know, that's a no brainer. Um, uh, so totally. I, I I look at these things, and I only invest when it's just painfully obvious. Um, but that's that sort of research that you just described. Um, probably would be fruitful, but I'm, I'm not in the, I'm not in the investment business. I, 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 my, my, my focus is elsewhere these days. And I, I, I think you just gave incredible advice to people who, who do have to invest on their own. I mean, why own a thing you don't understand? What do you think, what are you doing? I mean, you're taking really, I mean, we're not talking about people who are, are rich, People. We're talking about no. people who are trying to make enough money to have some kind of financial independence at some point in their life. Yeah. And doing it by putting your money into 500 stocks on the S&P 500 um, is great. If you're making enough money and saving enough money and you've done it for your whole life, you could probably come out pretty good. But if you haven't and you're behind the eight ball, you're going to have to do something different. And yeah. That's the, that's the big, big challenge. So one of the things that I talk about a lot is, you know, sort of appropriate levels of humility. And I think a lot of people are too humble. They, they discount their, their gut and they get intimidated by people who say, uh, well, you don't understand that. Therefore you need to pay me to be an expert. Mm -hmm. Um, and I run into that class of people all the time and they really, they really annoy me because like, I'm not the smartest guy, but if I can't understand something, probably 80% of the time, it's because somebody's trying to hide something from me as opposed mm -hmm. to it's just beyond my comprehension, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so over time, I've, I've learned that if I don't understand something, I should probably stay away. Good advice. Uh, and then on the flip side, uh, there's humility, which is this idea that you should be open to the fact that you're probably not right a lot. And if you're able to be humble, uh, then you're able to take in more information. And so, you know, being, I guess, arrogant enough to say, okay, I know this and these experts or supposed experts don't, and I'm going to ignore the advice of the experts, but at the same time, um, just take in information as somebody who, you know, truly questions their own assumptions. That's, 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 it's a tough balance, but I think it's probably a pretty, pretty good one. I think it's, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good comment on investing. It truly is. Jim, I want to thank you very, very much. You are incredible. Thank you for giving us all this time. Innovation Jim, where stack. can people where can people go to find out more about you and find out more about the book, The Innovation Stack? Uh, I do have a, a website, jimmckelvey.com, which has uh, you know some essays and some uh, you know you can get a free copy of the comic there and uh, check out some stuff that I kind of like. And it's 
it's really an area where I try to share uh, ideas. Um, and then, uh, you know, generally, uh, I, 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 I just apologize to people who try to connect on LinkedIn or Twitter or any of that stuff. Um, those are all accounts managed by people who uh, work for my publisher. <laughs> they are not really me. <laughs> well, the LinkedIn is really me, but I, I never check it because it just stresses me out. Um, but uh, JimMcKelvey.com or um, you know any of the any of the organizations that I'm that I'm involved with, I I I, I do listen. I love it because one of the great Warren Buffett takeaways that I've learned is you have to protect your time above anything else. And one thing that you can do these days to protect your time is stay off the social media suck. <laughs> so except for Twitter, obviously. So except go out and get you guys get get the innovation stack be building an unbeatable business one crazy idea at a time. Jing McKelvey, and you're phenomenal. And we appreciate your service so much uh, to the Federal Reserve. My God, you're, you're, you're doing great things there. And uh, just appreciate knowing you a bit. It's great. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Bill, Danielle, thank you so much. This has been super fun. And uh, cheers to all your listeners. Really enjoyed it. See you, man. All right. Bye-bye. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.